all you have. You're now tuned in to the caucus race. So just sit back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Calling all Star Wars maniacs, Padawans, and Rebels was a cause. Prepare to be discombobulated, because it's showtime, baby. And I am your hyper-fun host, Kyle. And I'm about to take you on the most thrilling audio adventure this side of the galaxy. Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives. I hope you got your excitement engines revved up, because we're about to take off on a super exciting adventure. Get ready to have fun like never before, because this episode is jam-packed with fantastic surprises. Strap yourself in, because now we're shifting it into ludicrous speed. Prepare for an adrenaline pumping space ride as we travel through part seven of Rare Harvest. Are you ready? Then let's go. On the other side of the academy, fresh snow had begun drifting up outside the dormitory where Skopik had recently returned from his afternoon workout. The Zabrak had just finished his shower. It was his routine to wash up at this time of the day when he had a rare moment of privacy and was stepping out of the foggy stall with a towel wrapped around his waist when he noticed a trail of blood across the floor. He stopped and looked down at it. The blood hadn't been there a moment before when he'd gotten into the shower. The splatters were fresh and bright, streaking across the floor in the direction of the bunks. Skopik felt his defense mechanisms tensing, going into a state of vigilant readiness, his natural aggression already ramping up to the next level. Easing his way silently the rest of the way out of the shower, he dressed quickly in his uniform and followed the blood trail to the right. He could smell something now, the rancid odor of meat that had started to decay. It seemed to be growing worse with every second. That was when he saw the body lying on his bunk. It was dressed in a tattered academy uniform, its limbs and back contorted at unnatural angles so that the head lolled sideways from the obviously broken neck. Staring at it, Skopik murmured a whispered childhood curse in his native language. The possibility that this might be a trick, some kind of poorly conceived prank, never crossed his mind. Someone had beaten a Sith Academy student to death and abandoned the corpse here on his bunk as a warning or threat. He didn't know which. He edged closer, hoping he might be able to recognize the victim from what remained of its face. There wasn't much left to identify. The skull was badly crushed, half the face swollen and purple, the other half grotesquely pancake so that one corner of the mouth peeled upward in a hideous parody of a smile. Skopik took another step, leaning forward, reaching down to turn the head over. The corpse swung itself up and lunged at him. It was Jura Ostrogoth. Skopik sprang back, instincts taking over as the thing charged at him in a ragged, flopping blur. He flew across the dorm floor, then forced straight up, grabbing the ventilation fixture that hung five meters above the beds, legs dangling, using the vent's beveled surface for purchase while he scanned the room below for any kind of weapon. Below, the corpse snarled and lunged at him, every leap taking it closer to where Skopik hung on. Thick, ropey spit swung from the half-pulverized jaw. From above, the Zabrak thought he could actually see colonies of maggots squirming in the thing's lacerated scalp. No doubt about it, 
Death had come for Jura Ostrogoth, but it hadn't finished the job. The Zabrak stared down at the corpse, heart pounding, killing instincts, fully engaged. On some level, from that first moment when he'd made the tape of Jura on his bunk, he'd known there would be an hour of reckoning between them. Now that the moment had arrived, couched in terms that he never could have expected, Skopik was filled with a wild, adrenalized bloodlust, and he felt himself grinning a crazy grin. Was he actually enjoying this? Yeah, he thought. Yeah, I guess I am. Drawing on the force, gathering it inside as he'd been taught during hundreds of hours of training, he jerked the vent fixture from its housing. It came loose with a hollow metallic pop, bolts rattling free, opening a rectangle of cold space that fed into an open air shaft above. Still dangling from the open shaft, Skopik turned the vent fixture over in his free hand, evaluating its immediate utility as a weapon. It was thin and aerodynamic with sharp edges. It would serve the purpose well enough. He looked down at the thing that had been Jura. Whatever you are, Skopik muttered, say goodbye to your head. Swinging himself around, he flung the vent housing as hard as he could at Jura's corpse. The makeshift discus whistled down through the air and found its target perfectly, shearing Jorah's head from its shoulders and sending it tumbling forward across the floor. Thick, half-clotted blood spurted from the stump of the corpse's neck. The decapitated body took another shambling step, tilted sideways, and fell to its knees, then down on its belly. Still dangling from the open vent, he was taking no chances. Skopik stared down at the thing in frank fascination. Nothing he'd learned at the academy even came close to what he was looking at right now. When he told the others... Thumping noises from below. The headless monstrosity was still moving. In fact, it was leaning forward, groping around the floor until it found its severed head, sitting back up again and holding the head face forward in front of its chest tilting it up in Skopik's direction so that those runny black eyes were staring straight up at Skopik, mouth working up and down as if it were chewing on something. The mouth opened and it screamed. <coughs> Skopik saw the decapitated corpse of Jura Ostrogoth haul back and fling its own head straight at him, its mouth still wide open. Without thinking, the Zabrak swung his free hand in front of his face and felt teeth clamp into the tender flesh of his forearm, ripping through the skin and muscle right down to the bone. The pain was unbelievable, chemical somehow, as if the incisors were coated in some kind of fast-acting acid. Agony shot up through Skopik's arm to his clavicle, and he let go of the vent and fell, the head still affixed to his arm, and hit the floor hard. Blurrily, he looked down at the head. It was making little gurgling sounds now, its jaw tightening and releasing, the eyes still gleaming. Get off me! Skopik shouted, trying to shake his arm, but unable to muster much strength. Was the arm broken? Get off! He grabbed a hank of the thing's hair and pulled as hard as he could, but it still wouldn't release. Get off my arm! 
For several horrible seconds, he tried slamming it against the floor, pounding it as hard as he could, but nothing seemed to affect it. It was locked on tight, the burning liquid pain continuing to drip through the wound in his forearm. Skopik stood up. The floor felt crooked under his feet. Staggering toward the bed, he underestimated the distance and crashed the floor a second time, this time landing on his face. Blackness was crowding up through his vision, eclipsing the light. And he realized now that the pain in his arm had basically stopped, overwhelmed by a cool numbness that had begun spreading through his entire body. Skopik fell utterly still. All sound faded. The numb feeling deepened, bringing with it a kind of near euphoria that swept through his consciousness in one solid black wave. This isn't so bad, was his final fleeting thought. This isn't so bad at all. Sometime in the next 30 minutes, a group of students came back to the dorms to find the room in disarray. They didn't see what was left of Skopik. He had crawled under the bed. But they did find Jura Ostrogoth's severed head. And by the time they heard the noises coming from behind them, under the bunk, it was far too late. In the dining hall, an hour later, 120 of the Academy's acolytes, more than half of the student body, were finishing their meal when the mag bolts in the doors clanked shut behind them, sealing them in. Whether it was one of the masters who initiated the sequence or some other factor was never made clear. A fifth-year apprentice named Rucker was the first to discover that they'd actually been locked in. Preoccupied by thoughts of the next day's early combat training, he just shoved harder on the thatchway, assuming it was stuck or broken again, but it still didn't give. Rucker cast a furtive glance over his shoulder to see if he was being messed with, but that did not appear to be the case. None of the others was even looking at him. By the time he'd started trying to use the force to get it open... Several of the other students were standing behind him, growing audibly impatient with Rucker, waiting to get out. Even those who hadn't left the tables were watching, waiting to see how this mini-drama would resolve itself. None of them was looking back in the direction of the kitchen until the screaming started. When he heard it, Rucker stopped fighting the blocked hatch and turned to see what appeared to be a group of six or seven Sith students swarming out of the food preparation area, launching themselves at the apprentices still seated over their meals. There was something seriously wrong with the tilt of their faces. He saw that right away. That made them look almost as if their features had been ripped off and stitched sideways on their heads. Their eyes were black and dead, their oily skin putty-colored and lifeless, except for their mouths, which were twisted back in grinning scimitars of unmistakable hunger. And they were screaming together as one. At this point, Rucker, who had approximately 30 seconds left of life as he knew it, saw the things overtaking the room completely in a series of brief, high-contrast impressions. It was like watching some kind of parasite latch onto its prey. 
Their already wide mouths somehow spread out even wider still, clamping down on the faces and necks and chests of the first rows of victims, taking them down with phenomenal strength and speed. Trays flew. Bright helices of blood spurted and looped in the air. A great bundle of steaming intestines splattered the floor to Rucker's right with the ripe, coppery smell of meat fresher than anything that had ever been served here before. All around him, Rucker saw the other apprentices fighting back. They were using force techniques, chokes and pushes and jumps, but the corpses tore through them indiscriminately. The only thing that seemed to have any effect was crushing the creatures or pinning them under something so heavy that they couldn't get free. When one of the things seized him around the throat, Rucker raised one hand and tried to lift the table in front of him, flipping it over. But the thing on his neck was too strong, too hungry. Rucker's knees buckled, his legs caved in, and he dropped to the floor, smelling the feeter of the thing's breath, even as its teeth gouged through his flesh. His vision flickered and grew intensely sharp, as if, in the final seconds, his senses had grown more acute, desperate to take in all that they could before oblivion descended. Across the dining hall, he caught a glimpse of one of the apprentices standing on a table with both arms outstretched. Two of the living corpses went flailing backward, slamming into the opposite wall 30 meters away. The attacking apprentice, he had long, flaming red hair and penetrating green eyes, stood perfectly still, waiting for the things to come back. Nothing about what was happening seemed to perturb him in the least. In fact, Rucker realized he could actually catch a hint of what the other student was thinking as he looked at the bodies and... The power. The power. And the other student wanted to be like them. Rucker let out a silent groan. Blood was trickling down into his vision now, blackness closing in fast. But just before it covered him up completely, he could finally make out the identity of the red-headed apprentice standing on the table. It was Lusk. Rucker saw now that he was about to get his wish. Come on, then. Lusk was laughing, jeering as the things charged at him. He stopped fighting them off and instead had allowed them full access to his wrists, which Rucker saw he'd slashed open with a dinner knife. Blood poured from his arms. Come on and take me. His voice became a scream. Trace landed at nightfall. The main hangar of the academy was empty. Disengaging the ship's main hatch, he jumped down from the cockpit and forced himself to stop and wait on the landing pad, his senses, both physical and telemetric, tuned for any immediate threat. The challenge, of course, was that this entire planet was a threat. Besides the blizzard raging overhead, the Sith Academy was a black hive of dark side energy. Trace could feel it buzzing around him like a huge swarm of venomous insects. The psychic contamination was so thick, so total, that for a moment he felt a blur of vertigo attacking his balance, tilting it dangerously off kilter. She's here. He knew it even though he hadn't received any further bursts of distress from her along the way, 
Zoe's kidnapper had brought her here. Trace felt her presence, recognized it somewhere amid the snowy ruin of the academy itself. He moved quickly across the hangar, measuring every ambient sound as a possible threat. Since there had been no way of disguising his arrival, his ship wasn't equipped with a cloaking device, he decided to head straight into the thick of things, anticipating a hostile reaction that he'd likely have to fight his way out of. He ran past a control booth and stopped there. The hatchway hung open, dangling sideways, as if it had been partially ripped off its housing. The chair lay on its side in front of the main flight control console, a data pad, and a pile of old holomags with titles like Hot Ships and Kuat Classics. Reaching inside, Trace rested two fingertips on the chair. A vivid splash of violence erupted in his mind's eye. A man screaming, jerking backward, while a pair of pale hands groped through, clutching his shirt and trying to pull him out. Trace felt the man's trapped panic, his horror as he tried to keep whatever it was away from him. That part of the image was just a crazed, blood-soaked blur, defined more by its frantic strength than any kind of shape or form. An instant later, the image faded. What else had happened here? He left the control area and strode the rest of the way through the hangar. It was becoming fully dark as he stepped outside and stared at the ruins stretched out around him, fading into a horizon. He'd glimpsed the academy during his descent, but it looked bigger from the ground. Kilometers across, all of it, he thought. Honeycombed with subterranean passageways and countless hiding places. Lights flickered, dotting the twilight with motion, or the illusion of motion. People were moving out there. He sensed them. Sith, students, and masters. That didn't matter. He would find her. A sudden gust of wind slammed him in the face, carrying with it a rich and fetid stench of decay. Trace narrowed his eyes, assaying the winding networks of broken walkways that led among buildings and temples and piles of old stone. Given the smell, they reminded him of capillaries on the face of a cadaver. His eyes settled on a tall black structure jutting upward, far above the other lowlier structures. Its top swathed in snow, a tower like a headstone amid a city of the dead. It was a start. He began walking. When Zoe saw what Tulka was pointing at, she felt sick. He had led her up to the top of a flat, ice-slick slab of rock that might once have been the roof of some unused building. It was dark, but the whippet had a phosphorescent glow rod that lit up the night like a thick slice of midday. And in the end, she saw much more than she wanted to. After a long moment of forcing herself to stare at the pulpy thing that squirmed in front of her, Zoe realized that she was looking at the student from Scabrus's laboratory, the one that had crawled out of the cage. Tulka must have recognized it. That was why he'd brought her up here to look at it. The thing's leg was pinned under a pile of rocks, and its head swung at an impossible angle from its upper torso, as though the neck was broken in several places. Yet even so, it writhed and shrieked and snapped at them, 
thrusting itself forward as if it could somehow break itself in half and attack with whatever portion of its body it could pull off. The whippet poked at it with a spear. The thing in front of them screamed again, its head twisting snake-like all the way around. As horrible as it was, Zoe thought the final remaining vestiges of humanity on its face were far worse. If she looked hard enough, she thought she could still see a dead teenager in there, fallen into a prison of its own decaying flesh. Explain that, Tulka said. Me? she asked. You're the one who brought us here. Now we're both stuck in the middle of it. One finger tapped her firmly in the middle of her chest. You're stuck. What about you? I'm already gone. Tulka turned away, took three steps, and stopped, looking down off the edge of the overhang. The long, oscillating scream that rose up around them now did not come from the thing smashed under the rock pile. It came instead from down below. And when Zoe joined Tulka at the edge of the overhang, she could see where he had shown the glow rod. The others. Six of them. Sith students, she saw. The fronts of their uniforms, caked in gore, clustered together. Their gray faces upturned to show eyes that glittered with that same shared intensity of appetite. When they screamed, they screamed together. One of them was a Zabrak. The others were... had been human. Zoe snapped a glance back at the corpse, whose leg was trapped under the rock. It's calling them. The orchid's voice broke through in her mind. Summoning them up here, Estizo. When the scream ended, she heard an eager scratching noise. The other students had already shoved forward, grabbing the ragged surface in front of them, clawing at it. They began to climb. everybody. That was what Kendra had asked Ra'at when they were outside, and he'd blown it off, or pretended to, because he didn't have an answer, or because the answer he had was too deeply disturbing to vocalize. But the question returned to him now, down in the dorms, as they went through room after room, finding nothing but empty, silent bunks and vacant corridors. They had been running for some time, but Kindra didn't even sound as if she was out of breath. And Ra'at realized that he was starting to feel better, too. Moving around had helped him clear his head, steadying him. Even his arm didn't hurt as much anymore. Being young had its advantages. Going low had been Kindra's idea, a means of buying time until they figured out what they were up against. And despite Ra'at's avowed intention to go to the infirmary and get checked out, he'd followed her. For now, anyway. They'd run inside a long utility corridor to a place where it branched off in a three-pronged intersection. The perma-steel ceiling oozed condensation just above him, and the long tube lamps embedded in the walls let off a pale, achromatic glow in the hanging clouds of moisture. The opposite end of the corridor intersected another group of dorms, and that was where they'd run into two other students, Hartwig and Mags. What are you two doing down here? Hartwig asked. He frowned at Rat. Dag, man, what happened to your arm? Training accident, Rat said evenly. 
Hartwig smirked. Fail. Meaning what? Meaning that. Hartwig pointed at the wound. Doesn't look like any training accident I ever saw. What did you do, fall on a vibroblade or something? I was in the pain pipe. Rad held Mags and Hartwig in the same regard that he did the rest of his classmates, with a kind of suspicious indifference. Their motives were purely selfish, as were his. He had no intention of sharing information that didn't somehow improve his own situation. At this point, they all knew something had gone very wrong, contaminating the Academy or the entire planet. For the moment, they were allies of opportunity. Have you guys seen anything else down here? What do you mean, anything? Hartwig asked. Or anybody? No. Mags cracked his knuckles nervously. Not yet. Weird, huh? It's pretty early for it to be so quiet. I heard there was some kind of assembly earlier, but Wig and I missed it. If we're going any farther, Kendra cut in, we're going to need weapons. Our best bet is dividing up. She pointed up ahead where the corridor pronged into three separate halls, searching these hallways, groups of two, and... Wait a minute, Hartwig said. Who put you in charge? In charge? Kendra turned, and Raat saw that she was staring directly at Hartwig. Her gray, almost translucent irises like newly formed frost. Nobody asked you to tag along. Her eyes flashed off Raat. Any of you. Hartwig shrugged uneasily. I'm just saying... What? We all feel something kind of bad in the air, right? Like maybe some kind of a... Uh, disease. But who's to say it's not just one of Scabrous's drills? Kendra's eyebrows went up. Excuse me? For all we know, he started this himself. Why? Maybe it is a training exercise, Mags put in. Or maybe he's culling the weak students. It's happened before. Remember the Unaki eye spiders? This is worse, Kendra said. Don't be so sure, Hartwig said. Eleven students went blind. Two of them died. Remember Soid Einray? Soid Einray was a defective already. Maybe, but he still hung himself afterward. And then we found out that Scabrous had reactivated the fertilized spider eggs from the pathogen bank as a nerve reflexivity drill. Hartwig refused to lower his stare. I still wake up with blood in my eyes sometimes. Kendra's expression didn't change. What's your point? You want weapons? I might know where we can find some, but I'm not going to risk getting in trouble with the masters if nobody's actually seen anything. Hartwig waited for a response, looking at Kendra, then at Raat, and finally let out a derisive snort. Yeah, that's what I thought. He turned to go. I'll see you pus bags around. Wait, Raat said. I saw something. Hartwig stopped and turned to look at him. Raat saw Kendra's tongue come out and moisten her upper lip, listening expectantly. Two bodies fell out of Scabrous's tower, Rat said. They hit the ground. I saw them hit, and I heard the noise they made. They were dead. He swallowed. His throat was suddenly very dry. But then they got up. Mags and Hartwig were both staring at him now with various degrees of skepticism and outright disbelief. 
Raat discovered that he didn't care. Let them doubt. It would only make them better cannon fodder when the time came. Were you all alone when you saw this? Kendra asked. I was sparring with Lusk. Mags blinked at him, and Hartwig's eyes grew wide. Maybe it was just Raat's imagination, but he thought the mention of Lusk's name brought a paradoxical shiver of credibility to the moment. It was too unlikely a detail to be made up. One of the ones who fell was Wim Nichter, Raat said. After he hit the ground, he got up and attacked me. He was dead, but he was still alive. I had to pin him under a pile of rocks to get away. Out with the rest of it then, he decided. That sickness in the air that you're talking about, that Scabrous is doing up in the tower, I think... He swallowed again, and this time his voice was steadier. I think he's bringing the dead back to life. There was a sharp rattle of footsteps from somewhere in front of them. Rat felt a sudden feeling of coolness rising up inside him, as if his skin were being stretched by gallons of cold water. When he spoke, his voice seemed to be transmitting from somewhere far away. Which way is it coming from? Cocking her head, Kendra pointed up ahead, where the main corridor divided into three sub-corridors, to the one that branched on the left. Up there, she whispered. You hear it? Rat's ears strained for sound. At first he heard nothing. Then they all did. A dragging, grating clank. It was advancing down the walkway with a graceless lack of stealth, growing steadily louder with every passing second. Rat began concentrating solely on himself and his own survival, forgetting all the others. The masters at the academy had trained them to fight as a unit when necessary, but a Sith warrior's true strength lay in his or her own personal will to power. When you could trust no one, fighting alone was axiomatic, a natural state. Flattening himself to the wall, he felt the force's dark side coursing through him, a crackling electric chill that rendered fear and apprehension obsolete and welcomed it. In that moment, he felt only a ready vigilance, weightless and unrelenting. Since arriving here on Odeser Fauston, it was the closest to happiness that he dared let himself experience. Yet in so many ways, it was superior to any happiness he'd ever encountered. It made traditional happiness look anemic by comparison. All at once he realized that he could see what was coming, not with his eyes, but in his mind. Relax, he breathed. It's okay. Kendra wrinkled her forehead, about to reply, when the droid rattled from the end of the tunnel, stopped, and regarded them dully. It was a bare-bones Sigma Series training unit, eight-armed, with belt treads and a force feedback intelligence implant so rudimentary that it was practically a piece of furniture. Rat hadn't seen one like it since he'd run newbie lightsaber drills, not long after his arrival here. Its copper-blue chassis was a dented utility cabinet carbon-scored with hundreds of old marks from countless years of clumsy rookies. Heaving a sigh, Hartwick came away from the wall, watching the others emerge into view around it. What's that thing doing so far down here? Mags muttered. 
The droid clicked and produced a series of broken-sounding words, its equivalent of speech. Equipping such a unit with a vocabulator would have been pointless. Rat reached down and grabbed a loose strip of alloy sealant dangling from its undercarriage, pried it off, and wedged it directly underneath the thing's bulky central processor. He jammed the strip in as far as he could and twisted. What are you doing? Kendra asked. The processor cowl came loose with a snap. If I remember right, he said, this thing still got a visual mapping system. He eased his right hand between two hot layers of components, which means it should still have a playback function. And whatever it's seen lately should still be stored somewhere in its memory bank. He didn't glance up. Master Yakata used to make us watch our old drills this way, remember? Yeah, Mag said, but... The space in front of them flickered and brightened with a cone of holographic blue light. The image sharpening, gaining resolution and depth. They all stood back looking at it. Pale blue reflecting off their faces, none of them speaking. At first, Ra'at didn't quite realize what he was seeing. Mags was the first to break the silence. He sounded hoarse, as if he was still trying to whisper, but needed to clear his throat. What is that? Nobody answered. The hologram showed an area somewhere deep inside the tunnels, where an indistinct mob of figures was teeming not quite randomly in the foreground. From their uniforms, Ra'at realized that they were Sith acolytes. But there was something wrong about the way their bodies moved. A jolting, uneven pace. And he couldn't see their faces. From this angle, it was impossible to tell how many there were. All he could see was that they were hunched together, working over what looked like a massive pile of debris, shoving and piling and dropping it into place in the corridor ahead of them. Within just a few moments, the pile in the tunnel had grown noticeably higher. The light on the other side was narrowing to a thin band. What are they doing? Mags asked. Rat's voice was a nonspecific whisper. Building a wall. Maybe it's some kind of barricade, Hartwig said, so they can hold off whatever's out there. He caught his breath. It must be... Look, Rat pointed at the hologram. The angle's changing. Maybe they've got weapons we can use. Mags was sounding excited now. Yeah, look, that one's got a lightsaber. He was already heading up in the direction that the droid had come. Let's move! Wait, Rat said. What? Mags turned around frowning. What's wrong? Rat was still looking at the hologram. The droid had broadened its field of view, dumping on bandwidth. And the image's signal-to-noise ratio had improved dramatically. Now the blue light cone showed a huge mob of bodies, dozens of them, more than he could even count, crammed together in front of the barrier. It looked like half the students at the academy were packed into that part of the tunnel. Rat pointed. Their faces. Mags came back, hardly paying attention. I don't see what... He said and stopped. Oh, no... Several of the Sith students in the hologram were turning and looking directly back at the droid. Their faces were slack, 
and vacant, devoid of any emotion. It was the exact same way that Nictor had looked up on top of the overhang. Ra'at saw that some of them had wounds on their faces and necks, and their uniforms were badly torn, hanging from their torsos like bloody sails. He watched as one of them, a student whose name he couldn't remember, brought his face directly up to the droid's holocam, a sly grin peeling over his lips. Like Nictor, Ra'at murmured, and felt Kindra stiffening next to him in his peripheral vision. Hartwig said, What? There's light on the other side of that barricade, Ra'at said. But that's it. So what are they doing? Ra'at looked back at him. They're walling us in. Now that was insane, because this episode of Red Harvest was an absolute blast. My heart is pounding like a hyperdrive engine. I'm serious. It was like being pulled into a dark side nebula. But guess what? The excitement isn't over yet, because we still got the quota of this episode. And let me tell you, it's a quote that'll make you feel like you can conquer the entire galaxy. Brace yourself for the awe-inspiring words from none other than the extraordinary Asaz Ventress. She said, if there is no path before you, create your own. This quote is a powerful reminder that sometimes in life, we may find ourselves facing uncertain situations or encountering obstacles where there seems to be no clear direction. But instead of feeling stuck or discouraged, this quote encourages us to take charge of our destiny and create our own paths forward. In our everyday lives, we often come across situations where we may feel limited by our existing options or social norms. We may feel pressured to conform or follow the well-trodden paths that others have taken. However, this quote challenges us to think differently and embrace our own unique potential. Creating our own path requires a certain level of courage, creativity, and self-belief. It means breaking away from the conventional and daring to explore uncharted territories. It may involve taking risks, stepping out of our comfort zone, and embracing the unknown. By following this principle, we have the opportunity to shape our lives according to our own passions and aspirations. We become the architects of our own destiny, carving out a unique journey that aligns with our own values and desires, creating our own path, and allowing us to tap into our creative and problem-solving skills instead of waiting for opportunities to come knocking. We actively seek out new possibilities, innovate, and find alternate routes. We become active participants in our own growth and development. So next time you find yourself at a crossroad or faced with an uncertain future, remember this quote. And I think that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed part seven as much as I did, and I hope you will join me next time for more of the far, far away. Until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and is distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars Red Harvest was read to you by Jeremy Owens. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.